0: We've had a wonderful service thus far, very thankful for all the effort that everyone has put into the song service and the prayer service and the effort that you have made to make our gathering together this evening a part of your evening. I hope that you'll be blessed by the study as much as I'm sure you have been blessed by the other part of the service. As you can see on the screen this evening, we're going to talk about vain worship, vain meaning empty or futile or useless or not effective at obtaining the intended goal. And, of course, worship being an offering or a sacrifice before God uh, that's intended to exalt Him and please Him. In the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verse 8 and 9, Jesus cited the words of Isaiah the prophet and applied their truth to the generation of His earthly ministry. He said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. With these words, Christ warned us about a couple of aspects about our lives that can corrupt or compromise the uh, usefulness of our worship. He talked about someone's heart being far from the Lord, and he talked about someone's doctrine or teaching being based on the commandments of men, and he treated these as things that would render our worship vain. Now, in the churches of Christ, our history is built around a, a set of ideas that includes putting considerable emphasis on the concept of our worship being done properly. A lot of times you'll hear it in our prayers at the assembly. We'll ask the Lord that he will be pleased with our worship or that we will worship in a way that pleases him. Sometimes people use the phrase found in John 4 about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. We're interested in God accepting how we do what we do. And to some people in the religious world, that sounds bizarre. In their way of thinking, God's not going to be displeased with the mechanics of how we go about doing. It's not so much how we're doing what we're doing, but the heart with which we do it. And there is that idea that as long as you're worshiping God from a place of sincerity, that the the form and the method is immaterial to God, and the idea of, of our concerns and our teachings about doing things the right way, that that's all misspent and misguided energy. We're criticized for that. And and if you're here tonight and you're not a member of the church of Christ, then you might recognize that's something that, that people say about us. And I just want to tell you, we ought to welcome scrutiny. If we're going to follow the Word of God, we ought to welcome scrutiny. And I'll tell you what else. I welcome scrutiny of the opposing view. I welcome being scrutinized and questioned about, well, is what we're saying and is it really right? And at the same time and in the same discussion, a part of a robust and fair discussion is to scrutinize the other point of view. And the aim of the study tonight is to be willing to look at ourselves and ask the hard questions. Are we really right to put such an emphasis on the way we do the things that we do? And to ask the hard question, is it right to criticize us for that emphasis that historically we've placed on our manner or form of worship? And humble hearts will accept the Bible answer. And that's our goal tonight. Let's accept the Bible answer. Look at what Jesus said. He said that worship that comes from a place of a heart that's far from the Lord is not right. It is vain, and it is not acceptable to God. So right out of the gate, we have Jesus dealing a death blow to the idea that it doesn't matter how you worship. It does. At the very least, you've got to worship with a heart that is near the Lord rather than a heart that is far from the Lord. At least that much matters. And Jesus is clearly using Isaiah the prophet's words here to affirm the notion that if you don't have those ducks in a row, your worship is vain. And vain means useless. It's not accomplishing its intended purpose. And just because I like it and just because it gives me goosebumps doesn't mean that the Lord is pleased. And we worship to please the Lord. We worship to exalt ourselves. I remember visiting about worship uh, sitting on a plane next to a fellow from a totally different frame of view and a totally different... uh, he, He was a member of a denomination had a totally different perspective on a lot of things than what many of us would have. But he made an interesting statement that, that I thought really captured a problem in the dispute in the discussion today about worship. He said, David, a lot of people are worshiping the worship. And what he meant by that is people are caught up enjoying what they deem to be an enjoyable thing and that their enjoyment of what it is they're doing in their worship becomes the focal point of what moves them rather than their relationship with God. I thought he made an interesting point that underscored a lot of problems he felt like he saw where he worshipped. That people somewhere along the way had lost interest in worshipping God and had begun to worship the worship. They were fixated on what they were doing and whether or not they enjoyed it. And if they didn't enjoy it, if it didn't excite them, then they needed to change it because their personal level of amusement was the barometer of right and wrong. And that's not what Jesus taught. And Jesus is the Son of God, and He will be the judge of the world, and His opinion is the one that settles the matter. And He settled the matter when He said, a heart that's far from the Lord renders vain worship. And He went on to say, worship that's built on teachings that are centered on the commands of men, that that's also part of a problem that will make worship vain. So now that gets deeper into the issue, and that says, yes, form does matter. The way we do what we do matters. If what we do is governed by the will of God, then then we're in a good place. And if what we do is governed by the commands of men, then we're not just in a bad place, we're in a place that renders vain worship. In terms of the fundamental question, Jesus settled it in Matthew 15 verse 8 and 9. And I want you to know, Jesus said this too, and he said this about very sincere, devotedly religious people. And Jesus was right. So let's investigate further. Some people say, well, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and the problem with the Pharisees was they were too particular and nitpicky about the way they worship God and about the way they live their lives in service to God. And it's very often said that any idea about uh, serving the Lord that involves being very particular about the form or the way we go about things, that some people will label that as a Pharisaic attitude, that you're being like the Pharisees if you're real strict in how you do things. And there is Bound up in that criticism that's been leveled against us very often, there's bound up in that criticism the idea that that's what was wrong with the Pharisees. I've read a lot of commentaries on Matthew 15 that said, See, Jesus is telling them they're too particular about their form and the way they go about the particulars. And that was what characterized the Pharisees, trying too strictly to follow a set of rules. And I want to tell you that represents a misunderstanding of the Pharisees that a lot of people had. The Pharisees were not devoted to doing everything God said the way He said it. Back up in that context of Matthew 15 and verse 3. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And He's talking to the Pharisees when He said this. Christ's criticism of the Pharisees was not that they were too particular in their effort to be obedient. His criticism of the Pharisees was that they were too particular in following their traditions and at times bypassing the idea of obedience. His criticism of the Pharisees is the opposite. The Phariseic problem was they looked away from the law of God and looked at what they wanted to do and they put more emphasis on that. That is Phariseeism. Now, you might say, but well, didn't the the Apostle Paul say that the Pharisees was a very strict sect of the Jews? He did say that. And you know why he said that? Because they were very strict. In following what? Their traditions. That's what they were strict about. They were strict in their insistence that it's okay that we veer away from what God's law says back there in Moses' law and do things according to our traditions. You might say they practiced a kind of denominationalism. If we're going to have a robust and fair self-examining discussion of this, let's be robust and fair. The Pharisees were doing what a lot of critics and opponents of the Lord's church are doing today. And they're being very insistent in following their traditions instead of what the Bible teaches. And that's who Jesus warned about their worship being vain. In Zechariah 7, verse 5 through 7, the prophet of reform from years ago chastised his generation with these powerful words. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the low land were inhabited he's calling them out and this is him speaking on behalf of God and he reminds God's people of a time when they were doing things that aren't particularly easy to do they were fasting they were grieving It's the kind of thing that on the outside, you know, it would look like a a good and holy thing to do. And the law prescribes certain fasts and things like that for them to follow. So it wouldn't be hard to find things within the will of God that fit what they were doing. But he challenged them with a foundational question that speaks to the question of the evening. And that is, are you doing that for me? Or are you doing that for you? And that is what that fellow on the plane was talking about. Somewhere along the way, people lost sight. And everything about what they wanted to do when they went to church centered on what they liked. And someone might say, well, but it's not fair to protest. That's too judgmental and Phariseeic. You can't question those things. I don't have to. God already has. Through the words of Zechariah the prophet, God challenges all those who would come before him and worship with the question, are you really doing it for me? <clears throat> and we might think it's not fair for us to ask that question, but it's fair for us for God that would ask us that question. And it's fair to echo that question, and we all need to be willing to answer that with honest hearts. Vain worship is when it goes wrong. For it to go right, a person's personal life must be in order. To properly worship God, it's about more than the former, if I could use the word ritual, it's about more than just the ritual of what we do. We'll talk about those things in a moment, but for now, understand, it's got to come from the place of the right kind of life. Here Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 1, 14 through 16. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble for me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. These are people that were devout in maintaining the routines of their worship ritual and the Worship that he insinuated here, the new moons, the appointed feasts, those were all things that were commanded in Moses' law. So he's saying all this stuff that y'all are doing, where they're kind of they're following the rules in that sense, he said, I'm sick and tired of it. So let's forget the idea that just because we worship God, he's automagically happy with it. Isaiah the prophet puts a good nail in that coffin, doesn't he? He presents the Word of God in the matter, and he said, here's these people that the what they're doing as it relates to their worship is so displeasing to God, he's sick and tired of hearing their prayers. He's sick and tired of seeing them go through all the right rituals and jump through all the right hoops and do all the right things. Why? Because their daily lives were evil. Their hands were stained with blood. And you study other things that Isaiah and other contemporary prophets said about that window of time and Israel's history, and you'll find out they had a lot of moral ills going on. A lot of failure to live right in a day-by-day life. And God said, stop it. The solution is not to shut down worship. The solution is to live a life day-by-day day that glorifies God, that pleases God. They need to be concerned about the Lord's will on the other occasions in their life, not just when they're making some sacrifice or going through some ritual or some appointed feast. Those things were important, but how they lived day by day was important. So understand that your worship matters before any kind of ritual even begins. Because it matters how you live your life day by day. In Proverbs 28 and verse 9, he put it like this, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Well, for the child of God, prayer is a, is a wonderful thing, a wonderful blessing. It's a privilege to have the opportunity of prayer, to talk to our Creator whenever we want or need. But it's also a privilege and a joy to know that others are praying for you, that brings us such indescribable comfort. We see prayer as a good and wonderful thing, and from the faithful child of God it is, but not from the one who's living like a heathen, not from the one who's living far outside the will of God. Proverbs uh, 28 and 9 says, The prayers of such a person Are an abomination. That's more than just unacceptable. That's an abomination. Think about all the things that God describes as an abomination, and you'll realize it's a pretty ugly list. In Proverbs 15 and verse 8, he said, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. It kind of reminds us of what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 1, all those sacrifices they made on the feast days and you know, the burning of incense, whatever rituals they were going through. God was tired of it. He was sick of seeing it and hearing it. That was an abomination. He, did you notice what he said about their prayers in Isaiah 1? It's incredible. He was sick of it because of who they were day by day. And that's what this passage affirms for us. It's also important that we realize that your daily life is not the only consideration. And I make this point because some people have the idea that as long as your daily life is orderly in a moral way, that in, in, in your day-to-day life you're living in a way that pleases to God, that gives you a blank check in your worship. That lets you worship however you feel because all those feelings are coming from that platform of a moral life, so it's sure to be pleasing to God. And I want to show you that that daily life of devotion to God does matter for the worship to be right, but it's not the only thing. And we're going to read about King Uzziah here in 2 Chronicles 26, and I want you to notice his story. Verse 4 and 5, it says, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. King Uzziah was a godly man. His daily life was morally orderly. He was right. And that was, you know, in a period, uh, in the greater period of Israel's history where, you know, there were a lot of moral ups and downs, and, you know, there were times they would have a wicked king that would draw them into idolatry, and there were a lot of immoral behaviors that went along with that, and so, you know, it was common to have times when, you know, things were really bad. In fact, this is near the time of Isaiah's prophesying, (laughs) and Isaiah's complaining about some among God's people that were very immoral, but this guy wasn't one of them. This guy crossed his proverbial T's and dotted his proverbial I's. He lived right day by day, but there came a day for from the platform of that well-lived life, he made a ritual mistake in his worship. And we read about that in 2 Chronicles 26, now, verse 16 through 18. It said, When he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed, for you shall have no honor from the Lord God. Now, imagine a modern-day discussion over burning incense. The rules in Moses' law did not expressly say, if you're of the tribe of Judah, you can't do this. Moses' law didn't say that. What Moses' law said, Levites of the the descendants of Aaron, you guys are to be the ones that burn incense. And when he said, y'all burn incense... He didn't have to say, the rest of you guys can't do it. He would already said who was supposed to. Now imagine that this was what we were supposed to do today to burn incense, that that was a law from God for us. And somebody says, well, I'm not a, a descendant of Aaron, and I want to burn incense. Well, but he said these other guys are supposed to burn incense. Yeah, but he didn't say I couldn't. You ever heard that in a discussion about worship? Somebody's got something they want to do. They want to do as part of their worship to God, and somebody says, well, I'm not sure that's authorized. I'm not sure we're supposed to do that. And somebody says, yeah, but he didn't say we couldn't. Okay, let's take that question to the book. We take that question to the book, and we find King Uzziah breaking that rule of silence. The law didn't tell him he could offer that burning of incense. The law said only these Levites are supposed to do it. I don't even believe he said only. He just said Levites are supposed to do it, of the sons of Aaron. And when he said that, that immediately excluded the people of the tribe of Judah, which this king was. And so the priest, under the authority of God, comes and says, you transgressed. You broke the law. You did wrong. And you will have no honor from God for this. He got leprosy. Look at the story later on. He got leprosy. Does that sound anything like his worship became vain? And here's the thing about it. He was morally clean. Clean as a whistle. He had his daily life in order. But when he changed how he worshiped God, God rejected it and gave him leprosy. What does that say? Does that not say that, yeah, it's important to live a good life day by day, but that's not the only thing. You've also got to do things right in the way you worship, that it actually matters how we follow procedure. I know that words like procedure and obey and follow, and that sounds bad in a theological sense. Somehow in this world, the idea of obeying God has come to sound negative. Where on earth did did we get to this point? Following God is not Pharisaic. Following God is not judgmental and nitpicky. Following God is a heart that's devoted to God, a heart that's near God. Why on earth would we want to do anything but do things the way the Lord has taught us to do? What kind of heart would want to depart from doing things the way God said to do them? If you'll look at this story, you'll find out what kind of heart. Let me back that up. Look at the beginning of that reading in verse 16 his heart was lifted up. That's what kind of heart. It's a prideful heart. It's a heart that says it's about me and what I want to do. And that's how Uzziah went into that temple with an attitude of, I want to do this. Well, the Lord didn't say you could do that. Yeah, but I want to do it. And he didn't say I couldn't, so away we go. Hello, leprosy. Hello, vain worship. It's important that the heart be right In our worship, Jesus talked about those whose hearts were far from him. Think about that. Psalms 119 in verse 162 talks about a good state of heart when he said, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Well, let me ask a question. Does that include what God's word says about how we worship? (laughs) Do we rejoice when we find, can I say it, worship regulations? A good heart does. A heart that's devoted to the Lord does and says, This is a great treasure. Well, what kind of heart says you're, you're judgmental and nitpicky and you're Pharisaic? Well, a good heart loves the word, rejoices at finding the word, wants to be obedient. Think about that. It's more than just being sincere and real. Let's look at a story about King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13. King Saul had a lot of trouble with the Philistines. And this is a moment where he's about to do battle with them, and he's nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof about it. And he had good reason to be nervous. He wanted the Lord's blessing. And he had good reason to want the Lord's blessing because he needed it. So he's going to offer a sacrifice, right? But Samuel the prophet is supposed to be there to do that. Now let's look at the story. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Now, I'm going to stop there before I keep reading. There was to be an offering made, but Samuel the prophet had told him, wait till I get there. And like a good preacher, he was late. And Saul's checking his watch, and he's looking at the Philistines, and he's ready to hit the panic button. i got to make a sacrifice. This could go south on me any moment now. Therefore, I felt compelled. I love the way King James renders this. Therefore, I forced myself. That's like when mama catches you with your hand in the cookie jar. Boy, what are you doing in those cookies? I didn't want them, but I forced myself, you know. Who's going to buy that? Not my mother and not God. I mean, let's be honest. This is weak sauce. Well, I didn't want to, but you were late, and I forced myself. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. Stop. When you don't do what God said, you've done foolishly. Oh, don't get so caught up in the form and the particular and the ritual. When you don't do what God said, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord our God, which He commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Saul ripped his breeches with this one. This is where he began to lose the throne. And God looked elsewhere for a king that would be a man after his own heart that would fulfill all his will. God's looking for someone that would be obedient and do what he's told to do. And Saul proved here he wasn't that guy. And that sacrifice he made, it was vain. Now, was he sincere? (laughs) He was sincere to the level of panic. Philistines are closing in. He needs God's help. We've got to make a sacrifice. How more sincere could a man be? But that sincerity didn't erase the fact that he did contrary to what God had commanded. In 1 Chronicles 13, verse 4 and verse 8, we read about David going about to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. A very good thing for them to have done. And in verse 4, it said, All the assembly said they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Having a lot of people telling you it's okay for you to do it doesn't make it okay. It was right in the eyes of all the people. And so they went about retrieving the ark, carrying it on a new cart, having men that were not Levites attending to that matter. And in verse 8, David and all Israel played before played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps and stringed instruments and tambourines, on cymbals and with trumpets. I mean, they were sincere. They were joyful. They hadn't had that ark in a long time. They lost it at a battle with the Philistines, those rascals. And now David's set out under his reign. Saul's died and he's out of the way now. And so David's trying to put things back together. He's got a good plan, but he's not going about it right. God had rules about how that ark was to be transported and they were breaking them left and right before Uzzah ever reached up and touched that ark and died. Vain worship. The fact that they were deeply sincere and everybody thought it was right did not make it right. God wants our worship to be sincere. He wants our worship to engage the heart. But it must be done so within the framework of his will. Ephesians 5 and 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. This verb that's translated making melody is a curious word, it means to pluck a stringed instrument. Everybody's nervous now. What instrument did he tell you to pluck? Look at the verse. Your heart, not your harp, your heart. The Lord wants our musical worship to pluck the strings of the heart. He wants our hearts to be engaged. What kind of heart is not engaged by doing something that pleases God? Oh, I don't like that, it's too boring without these other things that we like to do along with it. What kind of heart is bored? By doing the will of God. What kind of heart gets restless and says, they're not the only ones that can burn that incense. I can burn that incense. I'm going in that temple and I'm going to do it. If we'll listen to the Word of God, He'll tell us. It's a heart that's lifted up with pride that doesn't gain interest or joy or excitement from doing the will of God. Our worship should engage the heart from the platform of a heart that's devoted in doing the will of God. And that should stir our hearts. Hear how he put it in Colossians 3 and 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. That word grace basically means favor here. It's a lot like plucking the strings of the heart. He wants us to have favor in our heart toward the Lord as we worship Him. I believe we did that tonight when we sang together. I believe people's hearts were favorable toward the Lord and were struck by the messages of the songs that we sang. You could hear it. You could hear it as we sang together. It meant something to us, and that's what God wants. God wants us to have hearts that seek His will and are stirred by doing so. Psalms 119 and verse 10, With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandment. Look at what it means to seek God with a whole heart. That's somebody who does not want to wander from God's commands. Somebody who wants to do things God's way. Not according to the doctrines and commandments of men, but God's way. That's the kind of heart God wants us to bring before him with our worship. Jesus put it simply like this in John 14 and 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. When our heart is properly engaged with the Lord, keeping his commands is what will interest us. And that will make us sing. That will make us sing joyfully. Because we have faith's confidence that the Lord is pleased with what we're doing. And our pleasure follows His. It does not replace Him being pleased. It is there because He assures us He's pleased. That's the kind of heart we should have before God when we worship And we should follow the right standard. Look at the standard of the early church in Acts 2 and 42. Speaking of the early disciples, he said they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The early church continued steadfastly in this set of things. And among the things they were steadfast in was the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. What was the standard by which they lived? Well, they were steadfast in it. And it was the standard of the apostles' teaching. And that's the standard we should be worshiping got by today. That's the standard by which we should live our daily lives today. The things that the Spirit moved the apostles and prophets of the first century to record in the New Testament. The church should still continue in the apostles' teachings, shouldn't we? That is our standard. Look at what happens when we depart from the standard of God's Word, going back again to the Old Testament. In Leviticus 10, verse 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. These guys offered profane fire. I set out years ago to dig through this and figure out exactly what rule they broke. You know, where did Moses' law say, Thou shalt not offer a strange fire? I, I looked up the incense recipe. I tried to find insinuation in the language that they changed the recipe. I looked for everything I could find. You know what I found? There was a fire below an altar there outside the tabernacle where they offered animal sacrifice. And that fire was to be kept burning at all times. And when they packed up and moved... Part of that fire was to be carried with them and kept burning. And then when they set up camp again, that same fire was to be kept burning. And any time they burned incense, they were to go out there with a censer and get some of that fire that was holy fire and bring that in and use that to ignite the incense. And they just didn't use that holy fire. What difference could that make? If they used Ohio blue-tip matches or went to my shed and borrowed my propane flamethrower, which is awesome, by the way, or a little cutting torch. I mean, really, what difference could it make? As long as you get the stuff lit, can you see the way people reason their way through these things? And what will happen is our reasoning will pull us right out of the will of God and off into the will of man if we're not careful. As far as I can tell, there was no thou shalt not that they violated. God told them, use this fire, and they used a different fire. It's a lot like our story earlier. God didn't say that I couldn't. He didn't have to. He told you what to do. And they didn't do it. And they died. And what about in the New Testament? We're interested in what the New Testament teaches as well. 1 Corinthians 14 and 37, Paul said, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. These things are the commands of the Lord, Paul said. And this is in a section where he's telling them how to conduct an assembly. And he's emphasizing to them, These rules, these regulations for this ritual, to add all the buzzwords that get people nervous, these things are commands of the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's not hard to connect that up. When our hearts are in it, we turn to the Lord's standard, the Word of God, because we understand those are His commands. And that interests us because our hearts are not far from Him, like Jesus said in Matthew 15, but they are near Him. They're interested in doing His will. Some people say, well, those Old Testament stories where they didn't keep the law, those aren't relevant. It's interesting to me that with the wave of a made-up phrase, we can just rip away two-thirds of the Bible and throw it away. That's kind of interesting. The relevance of those old stories is well established in Paul's admonition to the Romans to turn back and look at them and take interest in God's relationship with his people based on them. You'll read about that in Romans 11, and you'll read in Romans 15 and 4, admonition to go back and learn from those stories. The Lord said they are relevant. Furthermore, we find the same kind of appeal to the Word in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 The church at Corinth had a problem in how they were having their communion service of the Lord's Supper. They were not following form. They were not following procedure. They weren't following the rules. And Paul wrote to them about that in, in chapter 11. And when we take up that reading in verse 23, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Well, What did Paul receive from the Lord? That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do, in remembrance of me. Where did he receive that from the Lord? Well, Paul had inspiration there's also this gospel record called the gospel of Luke. And if you look carefully at what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 11, you'll find it's based more closely on Luke's record of the night that Jesus was betrayed than than Matthew's and Mark's. I'm not saying they contradict. I'm saying he follows the wording that you find in Luke. So they've got a problem with how they're conducting the, the Lord's Supper or the communion service. And to correct that problem, Paul appealed to what he received from the Lord. That is the Word of God. Luke's inspired gospel record. He appealed to the Word. And he said, I've already taught you guys this stuff. I've already delivered this to you. And then he went back and recited it. And he recited it, emphasizing what Jesus said. This do in remembrance of me. He reminded them, Jesus commanded them to follow the procedure he set up there at the Passover supper. And if they would go back to Luke's gospel and do what Jesus said to do there by following the procedures prescribed in the Word of God, it would fix what was wrong with what they were doing. That sounds like a preacher appealing to the Word of God because somebody was worshiping in a way that wasn't pleasing to God. That's exactly what that is. And that harmonizes in principle with everything that we've studied thus far. Our life matters, our heart matters, and following the standard matters. It all matters that we be obedient in the way we worship. Listen to what Samuel the prophet told King Saul in 1 Samuel 15 and 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Whatever sacrifice or worship we want to conjure up to give to God, the one that he's interested in is our obedience. That is acceptable worship obedience from the hands of a life lived right daily, and a heart that's near God. And that's how we worship without having vain worship. Is your worship life right with God today? Well, if you're outside of Christ, it's kind of hard to get that right. You need to be in Christ. You need to be a Christian. And if that is a need you have this hour, this congregation would love to help you with that. But if you're a Christian and you need the church to pray for you, these elders here would love to assist you with their prayers. So at this time, we extend an invitation to you. If we can help you in either way, please come. Have a seat on the front while we stand and sing.